Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, August 28th. After an unprecedented day in tennis history, a day that saw the USTA, ATP, and WTA stand in solidarity with Naomi Osaka in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, it was obviously a day none of us in the tennis world will forget anytime soon. And of course, Nina Pantich of Tennis.com joined me yesterday on the Mini Break podcast to talk about Naomi Osaka's decision to not play on Thursday. You know, any equivalent moments we could think of in tennis's past and of course what it means moving forward for the sport to see such a you know cal- high caliber event to see the ATP WTA tour stand in solidarity with a player after she made the decision not to play that's obviously a breakthrough moment the sort of thing uh, you know moment in a player empowerment that we won't be forgetting anytime soon but of course uh, that overshadowed justifiably so I will say but you know what was an outstanding day of of play on Wednesday. We continue to have our favorite pros back in action on the court for this three-week swing in New York, the Western and Southern Open. Coming to a close this weekend, we will kick off semifinal play this Friday, finals on Saturday as well. And, you know, it's been a really exciting week of tennis. We want to recap those quarterfinals on this podcast and, of course, get you all ready for Friday's action. Joining me to do just that, as he has all week long, you know him, of course, as our Cracked Rackets do everything. A former Denison men's tennis great and a man I affectionately refer to as James Foster McDonald. Jamie, how are you doing today? Not too bad. Just getting in podcast shape because the U.S. Open's coming up. So if I'm not getting used to it now, it would be a it would be a rude awakening. To say that this is yeah, you know, this is part shameless self promotion, part shameless plug as well. I think I've done like 20 hours of podcasts this week. I honestly have lost track at this point. We are doing our best here at Cracked Rackets to prepare all of you listeners for the U.S. Open because there's so much uncertainty, right? Five and a half months layoff. Do we, any of us really know what to expect to happen? No, of course not. But we're doing our best to look at the trends, examine the players who are playing best. If you missed any of that preview content on the Great Shot podcast, I've had Ben Rothenberg, Mark Lucero, and then Nina Pantic join me this week to talk about the most interesting players on the WTA tour, the dark horse candidates, and of course, ultimately our contenders for the event. Thus far, we've also had JC Aragoni come on to talk about the ATP dark horses, Luke Jensen, former Grand Slam champion, coming on today to name our ATP contenders. And of course, yesterday, we saw the draws released for the U.S. Open. Always so exciting on a day you have a Grand Slam draw reveal, of course, to have that happen in the midst of Naomi Osaka protesting, you know, stepping away from play on Thursday. It was just, it's been a really chaotic 48 hours in the tennis world, and I know there's been a lot to process, Jamie, but before we get into any of these matches, curious your initial reactions. We're going to be doing a full draw breakdown, videos on YouTube, full podcasts as well, but just initial reactions to the U.S. Open draws. I mean, so first things first, I always forget how big the draws are. I mean, the amount of first-round matches is just insane. So obviously, I'm so excited to be able to sit there and have my choice between a ridiculous amount of matches is going to be incredibly fun. And best of all, those first-round matches, particularly on the men's side, are, as you would say, incredibly juicy. Um, I mean, there are a ridiculous amount of first-round matchups that could go either way, especially involving some players that are, you know, seated high in this draw. So, 
it's going to be very, very interesting. And, you know, especially when we get to our conversations about seeds on upset alert, it's going to be a long list. Yeah, I mean, look, I texted you, I think, a list of like 12 first round matches yesterday. And yeah. I forgot to include Zira Anderson in that initial wave on the men's side. On the women's side, it's always been a toss up. But sure. I mean, the draw reflects that. I will say initial reaction. And I did a couple of other shows, non-crack racket shows last night. This was an, an initial reaction I had the more I looked at the women's draw. The draw gods bless Serena Williams. Of any of the four quarters she could have fallen in, she got the one she would have picked. Madison Keys, her other top eight seed, that's a win, I think, for her. A chance at Sakari again in the fourth round. You know, not a looming, like, a, there's no Jill Teichman, no Jessica Pegula, no Marie Buzkova floating as a potential second, third round match. That, I mean... I, the Sophia Kennan pathway to the U.S. Open might be the single most brutal Grand Slam path I've ever seen. But, yeah, much like you, my initial reaction was, oh, my God, 128 draws, you know, 128 first-round matches. Monday and Tuesday are just going to be extraordinary. Oh, yeah, it's going to be good. It's been a while since we've uh, since we've had that feeling, so it's it's going to be nice. No, I'm almost slightly nervous, I think. Much like, you know, a lot of these players seem to have uh, been dealing with those nerves as well all week long. We've seen so many matches, 5-4 scenarios, 4-5 scenarios, players broken, you know, seemingly at love at 15-40, making these decisions where you're just like, oh, you haven't played matches in five and a half months. And yet, as we approach these semifinals of the Western and Southern Open, it's very clear particularly on the men's side, although I do think a couple of women have also emerged as just prohibitive favorites on the women's side. So with that, let's get into our Western and Southern quarterfinal breakdown. And of course, we are going to recap a couple of the matches in depth, touch on everything as well, since there's only eight matches and really is amazing how much less stressful it feels like to do these pods. The first day you're like, oh my God, there's 75 matches. What are we going to talk about? Which one should we leave out? Yada, yada, yada. At this point, you get to see each and every match. You can watch replays of all of them as well and not kill yourself from a time commitment standpoint standpoint uh but a match that i mean i was just so thrilled to be committed to to start the day a match that had the the feeling of and we keep saying this but okay tennis is back this is what i came here to see the first men's quarterfinal of the day roberto bautista agut knocking off daniel medvedev in three sets coming back from a 6-1 first set deficit to win the match 1-6-6-4-6-3 RBA now. Comes back from a set down in two straight matches. Did it against Hachinov in the round of 16. Did it again here against Medvedev. Your thoughts on this one, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, look, this was, uh, I mean, as you can easily tell by the scoreline, this one had its ups and downs. Um, and particularly after that first set, I mean, I, I think the storyline continued from what a lot of people expected, which Medvedev looking good, feeling good on the hard courts, and this is what it is, right? And it's the Daniil Medvedev we've come to know in the last couple of years who can just be so dominant because of his prowess on the defense and his ability to turn defense into offense. And I mean, more than anything, you know, we, we, we'll get into this when we get into the specifics of the match, particularly in the third set, some of the decision-making we saw from Daniil Medvedev, but the storyline here is what an incredible job from RBA to be able to flip this match on its head, get it squared at once at all, and then drive it across the finish line. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I appreciate, by the way, you saying look good, feel good out there because that reminds me these podcasts made possible every day by our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. You want to look good, trust me. Midwest Sports has the gear to make you look good. You want to feel good, trust me. Aerobar, the only tennis-specific energy bar in the business. Go to MidwestSports.com, use our promo code CR15. Go to Aerobar, use our promo code CRACKED15. I am sure Daniil Medvedev at the end of his match was ready to crack at least 15 rackets, Jamie, because this match was on his strings. He led 6-1-4-3 up a break in that second set, and if you were on tennis Twitter during the first set, the amount of people who fired off takes, and I get to call him out by name because he's a returning champion here on our Crack Rackets podcast. Ben Rothenberg types out a tweet. He says, it's Novak Djokovic, Daniil Medvedev, and then a big gap, and those are your two U.S. Open men's singles favorites, and it felt like that through the first set and a half of this match because Medvedev was just Medvedeving it up. You know, he was using his length, playing 7, 8, 9, 10 feet behind the baseline, but just tracking down every ball, making Roberto Bautista Agut uncomfortable, making Bautista Agut feel the need to press in this match. You know, you look at the winner, Unforced Air, Medvedev, 27-32, to 32, Bautista Agut, 22-43. to 43. Bautista Agut was the one who had to take some risks, take some chances, and he wasn't doing it that well in the first set, but... In the second set of this match, you saw a tactical change from RBA. You saw him flip the switch. You saw him, you know, on the do side, it felt like each and every point serve out wide, either a first ball approach to the ad side, or if the serve was good enough, a serve and volley and a first volley drop volley. And he started executing that really, really well in this match. Bautista Agut, 24 of 31 at the net. It's probably the thing he did best was that tactical adjustment, was staying and he got Medvedev on the back foot. And I continue to say this about Daniil Medvedev. The serve, you know, six foot six, it's a weapon. His movement, his length on a hard court, it's a weapon. But he doesn't make things easy for himself in any sort of point. You know, each point is going to be 15, 20 balls if he has his say. And that just gave RBA a lot of chances. And it's a huge credit to Roberto Bautista Agut that he was able to make the adjustments needed, started moving forward more, starting throwing in drop shots even to just take advantage of Medvedev's court positioning. Tactically, this was a brilliant match from Bautista Agut. Yeah, I agree. And and it's sort of you know, highlights something for me about Daniil Medvedev because you think about his game and sometimes when you start trying to describe it, it's all over the place. It's like, okay, is it the defense? Is it the offense? And a lot of times you talk about both, which is what makes him such a great player. But the thing that RBA sort of brought out here, for me at least, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, but look, when you're looking about when you're looking at Daniil Medvedev, you see offense from the serve because he has that big frame and he can put in huge serves. And so that's just some automatic offense that can he can generate. What's funny, though, is when he's most comfortable attacking next, it's when he's been put on the defensive, he uses that pace and then puts himself in an offensive position. He loves being on the run and creating it from there. Sometimes when he has to be the one to initiate it off the lone rally, he's a little bit less comfortable. Um, And so that's why a lot of times throughout this, yes, you mentioned the serve and volley and those different tactical switch-ups. There were some times where Bautista Agut, and look, we know this is a guy who can just grind from the ground. He can grind from the baseline. He did exactly that. RBA was like, listen, I'm just going to make balls this point. 
and I'm just going to do that. And it's going to be a 30-shot rally, and we're going to see what happens. Um, and, and you saw Daniil Medvedev. I know we talked about this offline a couple times, but some of the decisions you see Medvedev make, I know particularly toward the end of this match in the third set when he tries to crank that backhand down the line and misses by the entire doubles alley, right? I mean, so RBA was putting him in uncomfortable positions like that, and it's kind of refreshing to see somebody make Medvedev feel uncomfortable just with how they play the ground strokes. Yeah, and I just think in this match, yeah, our, uh, Medvedev was minus 5, RBA was minus 21, but that's just so in terms of winner-to-unforced error sure. ratio, but that's just indicative of how much more aggressive Bautista Gut was willing to be. Medvedev was 9 of 15 on net points. That number should have been double, maybe even triple that. There were so many times he got RBA stretched outside the outer thirds of the court or because he had almost lulled him to sleep, just had opportunities to jump in, sneak in, knock off a volley, and Medvedev's a pretty good volleyer, especially because he has so much length moving forward. He can just cover a lot of different angles, and he just never looked comfortable doing that. He wasn't decisive, and, you know, that last game of the match, Medvedev holds really easily 4-5-3. Bautista Gut serving it out. I think Bautista Gut goes up 40-15 in that game. And then Medvedev, Medvedev. He started playing a little bit more aggressively at the baseline, created some chances for himself. Bautista Gut also gifted him one with a missed forehand volley in the net that probably should have put this match away. And then Medvedev had two break points in that game. And if you listen to our GSP Ace of the Day, you know Medvedev was crucial to a lot of the action we had on Wednesday. And it felt like, okay, oh my god, Daniil Medvedev might find a way to escape after leading this match and then, you know, blowing that second set after being up 4-3 in a break and just being down the entire third set. And he plays this really good break point. And, you know, you know the point I'm talking about, Jamie. We talked about it beforehand. He misses that backhand down the line. He just goes for this random backhand slap down the line winner. And sometimes he makes those shots, but to me, that's indicative of what I was saying earlier. I just, I don't know what his easy weapon is. And I'm not saying I'm concerned because in terms of his floor as a player, three out of five sets, if he makes anything less than the quarterfinals of this U.S. Open, it's a disappointment. But I also just think once you get to a quarterfinal, semifinal, final, you have to find a way to win points easy for yourself. And I just don't know if Daniil Medvedev can do that right now. So I think sometimes, I think we've made this comparison before a bit with Monfils because they have the athleticism and, and can, you know, sit 10 feet behind the baseline and get things done, especially when you when you make it a longer match. For me, Daniil Medvedev shows his true offense when he's put in a bad position. When his back's against the wall, that's when he's comfortable going for the big ball, creating something, producing something on his own racket. So I think for me, a lot of times, it might just be a mentality switch of, hey, you know, look, I'm going to be the one dictating here because when he does, both his forehand and his backhand can be a weapon. I mean, we saw it. What was it? The U.S. Open last year when he was uh, he was very injured. Uh, what was it? His leg was it against Vavrinka when he just started slapping? I, I, is that the right match? Yeah. But anyway, yeah, it was against Vavrinka, and it was very clear that his moving was impaired, and he was still able to compete in that match despite the fact that he was maybe at 50% because he knew in his head, he's like, okay, I accept this. I can't move. I can't do my top game plan B, C, D, you know, I'm going to have to use my weapons and that he did. Right. So it's all there to me. The concern isn't the fact that he doesn't have a weapon. It's for him. It's knowing when to use it at the right time. Yeah. I mean, 
Look, the reason we are talking about this match at length is because it was such an interesting match. Daniil Medvedev coming out of this Western and Southern, regardless of this loss, still feels like a guy who legitimately has a shot at winning the U.S. Open, and obviously that's something we'll talk about more in our preview pods, but it was a really good match, and we've talked a lot about Medvedev again Credit to Roberto Bautista Agut, who fought like crazy in this match, who kept making that extra ball, who easily could have quit after going down, you know, that 6-1 first set after leading by a break in the second, only to go down a break 4-3 at the end. But he just kept clawing his way back into this match. I think, you know, he broke Medvedev something like four out of five times between the mid, that 4-3 game in the thir- uh, second set through the beginning of the first set. It was just a really good result for Bautista Agut and, you know, Again, super. you look at some of the superficial stats, some of just the easy uh, numbers from this match for Bautista Agut. You know, 69% of his first serves, that's a win. 41 of 68 on those first serve points, that's a win. To hold Medvedev to 10 of 34 on second serve points, you're playing aggressive tennis, taking control of the match. I mean, RBA is a guy you have to watch, and now he gets a day off. It's going to be really interesting to see how he competes against Djokovic. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see if he can... Uh... See if we can put it put Djokovic to the test because you know we've seen that before. You see a guy playing well, grinding out a win, and then gets to Novak, and it just simply doesn't matter. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of you know having your opponent's level of play not matter, I think one of the players, maybe the only player right now in the women's game who possesses that sort of talent, who when she's playing her best tennis, you know, I would say actually she's one of three players who we're about to discuss who has that sort of talent. Where if she's playing her best, it doesn't really matter what her opponent is doing. And that, of course, is Naomi Osaka, the DraftKings favorite right now to win the U.S. Open, a semifinalist at this Western and Southern. And of course, again, we talked with Nina Pantic about her decision to not play on Thursday to, you know, boycott or boycott the match is the wrong word, but to stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, that's the support she received from the WTA, ATP, Western and Southern. Obviously, it's its own story. And to ask any player to come back after a decision like that like these past 48 hours I'm sure she has experienced you know regardless of what we see in her semifinal my takeaway from this week from the Western Southern Open Naomi Osaka is the favorite entering the U.S. Open and in this match in such an impressive 4-6-6-2-7-5 win over Annette Conteve Annette Conteve is playing some outstanding tennis she was a finalist in Palermo she's looked really good here this week moving the ball around the court so well that first set she just came out on fire she was you know tracking down the Osaka forehand she was doing a really good job with her return as well to take control of points you know she was just she was playing fearless tennis she was playing she was the aggressor she was playing to win and she goes up 6-4-2-0 in this match and then you know I don't know it starts again I, I apologize for the cliche but then Naomi Osaka flipped the switch. And the tennis Naomi Osaka played from 6-4-2-0 down to, you know, split sets, 4-6, 6-2, up in the third. That's the best eight-game stretch I've seen from any player in this tournament. Male, female, doesn't matter. Naomi Osaka was just dominant there. And on these courts, with the power she can play with, with the way she can dictate with her serve, and, you know, in this match against Conteve, you look at the things she did best once again, 37 of 46 on that first serve. Now, of course, you're always concerned when a player's flipping the switch. You just want to see her dominate from start to finish. But Naomi Osaka has showed that quality that only the greats display where when she flips the switch, 
doesn't really matter what her opponent's doing. Yeah, and, and look, midway through that second set, it's interesting. There's a lot you could say about Kontavit as well, but most of what you'd be talking about is Osaka, and exactly what you just said, completely flipping the match on its head. And it's interesting, if you go back and watch the match, Osaka, look, you've seen this across matches now because we've seen her play enough. There's sometimes where she just doesn't look comfortable out there. Um, and to me, that was the first set. And that's not to take anything away from Kontavit because she did play well and deserved to win that set, absolutely. Um, but Osaka really really dug her heels in and became comfortable in that second set. And that's when you see this thing happen because as soon as she feels comfortable, as soon as as soon as she's in the right headspace, you know, sh I mean, watch out whoever's on the opposite side because, you know, there's so many things that she can do both with her serve on the return. She can hit a huge return and end the point instantly. She can dictate from the ground. I mean, she just has the entire game. And as soon as she does this, she's putting a ton of pressure on Contevay. She's creating break point opportunities for herself gets it back on serve, gets the break, and then from this, I mean, she has all the momentum in the world going into the third set. Yeah, and, you know, it's a credit to Conteve that she was able to fight back in that third. She was down for the majority of it, was able to get back on serve 4-5 all. Actually had a couple of game points to send this to a third set buster, but yeah. Osaka just... I mean, when she locks in with that forehand, Jamie, or the backhand wing, just the power she's able to create, especially with the speed of these courts. And I think I have slowly been convinced that these courts are playing quicker than your Australian Open hard court, your Indian Wells hard court, I suppose. Although Indian Wells is legitimately sure. just Indian Wells is clay, that's cement. <laughs> um, but I just think... I mean, you watched the same match I did. Some of those forehands she hits, because I've noticed this pattern, and Yastremska tried it, Conteve tried it a little bit as well, where these players want to be playing big down the center with Osaka. You don't want to open up angles for her because she moves well, and when she's on the run and hits a you know on-the-run forehand with the power she can generate, you just you're in a lot of trouble as her opponent. You're just, you're asking to be put in a defensive position. And yet, you know, the Naomi forehand swing, it's always never going to be the most aesthetically pleasing forehand, but it doesn't matter if you try and overwhelm it with power right now. She's able to hit it back harder at you down the center. And just eventually she seems to be getting the ball to move. She wants to move forward on. And she's just been so decisive. And, all right, I'm going to move forward. I'm going to put this ball away. And more often than not, she's been successful in doing it. And she can just hit you off the court. And in a time of uncertainty, in a time when the majority of these players aren't that match tough, we've talked about it. Are are you making things easy yourself for yourself? Do you have plays you can turn to even when you're not in rhythm that you can use to find your rhythm. Naomi Osaka checks off every box you would want except for the box of this is the first tournament we've seen her in in five and a half months. And yet, I don't know. I just, you know, Annette Conteve was spectacular. And you look at the draws, they're in the same portion of the draw. This is a potential round of 16 U.S. Open rematch. I really hope we get to see that because, again, I thought Conteve played really well in this match. She won 62% of, or 63% of her first serve points, 56% of her second serve points. That's really hard to do against Naomi Osaka. And, you know, that second set went by so quickly. But outside of that second set, where really Osaka was untouchable, Annette Conteve, you know, saved three of the five break points she faced. She also converted uh, both of the break points she had. I just, 
regardless, Osaka is the only player I have seen on the women's side through the entire restart of August. Maybe Simona Halep as well, who just has a gear that no other player right now seems to be able to reach. It's why she's my favorite now heading into the U.S. Open. Even if she loses uh, you know, a really tough match against Elise Mertens in the semifinals here today, it, it doesn't really matter to me. Yeah, I think that's fair. So let me unpack a few things you said there. Um, (laughs) So yes, I absolutely understand why you think she's the favorite going in, because especially that level that she reached, particularly in the second set, I mean, as you mentioned it, untouchable. For me, though, I think players do themselves a disservice playing against Osaka when they feed her this rhythm, this going with pace Mm -hmm. down the middle. That's not, I mean, listen, sure, you may be able to get some points, but you would be able to get those points regardless if you're hitting that well. Because for me, Osaka thrives on that rhythm. That's what gets her back into these matches. Is If she's not feeling great, the repetitions are going to come. And as soon as she starts feeling good, um, I mean, you're in trouble. So to me, it's more about never letting her get in a rhythm. I mean, you saw what players have done, like, like I don't know, let's talk about an Ash Barty or a Sakari, the way they can switch up pace and throw in slices. I've seen those completely dismantle Osaka because she loves the rhythm of having a lot of pace coming straight into her strokes. You know, throw, throw in different balls, right? Don't just give her the same ball over and over and over. With paste in the middle third of the court is just simply not going to get it done against Osaka. And I think Kanteve, if she goes up and does end up, you know, matching up with her in the U.S. Open, will play that a little differently. At least I hope that she will employ a little bit more of rhythm-breaking tennis as opposed to I'm going to try and beat her with pace through the middle third. Yeah, I, um, I think, again, a lot of the points you made, they're solid now. For Naomi Osaka, who knows where she's going to be at, but if we've learned anything about her, it's clear she's a champion, you know, mentally, and so much has happened, obviously, and she stands for so much beyond her talents on the court. I always say the thing that's most impressive is, you know, the only thing more impressive than her talents on the court is what her actions off of it are, and I just, I still think, though, right now... She may be as impressive on court right now as she is off of it. She is playing that well. Do I love the fact that she does seem to be turning the switch on and off in a couple of these matches? No, but unlike some of these players, i.e., and not to say she's, you know, Serena Williams, whose switch right now just isn't really working. I think power is out at the Serena Williams household. Naomi Osaka, it it just, she can flip the switch, and when she does, her tennis is just better than anyone else's I've seen. Yeah, no, it's a really impressive level. So definitely going to be looking for big things for her coming in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and it's going to be a really fun matchup with her and Mertens in the semifinal as well. One last breakdown I want to talk about. It was the other three-set match we had on the day. A comeback win for Milos Raonic. A Milos Raonic who has looked really rock solid thus far through this U.S. Open, and you know certainly no one benefits from fast courts more than Milos Raonic. Raonic, a 4-6, 7-6, 7-5 over Filip Krajinovic, but you look for it, Raonic now wins over Krajinovic, who is playing so well, a win over Andy Murray, a win over Dan Evans, and it, you know th- those are really, really good wins for Milos Raonic, who clearly has found a level of comfort on these courts this week. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, to me, though, I mean, look, Raonic, we've talked about him multiple times now, especially because he keeps winning. We know what we're going to get out of him, right? And, and so sometimes the level will change. The serve will be slightly better or worse. The forehand will be a little bit bigger or not. But to me, I mean, what a week for Kranovich, right? 
I mean, some of the things that he's done, and even throughout most of this match where it looked like he still could have won this, incredibly impressive, and he's got to be feeling good now. Yeah, I mean, for Milos Raonic, you look at the thing he, you know, that jumps out to you in this match, 25 aces. That's obviously exceptional. The fact that he was a set and a breakdown, and he was able to come back, Jamie, for Milos Raonic so much, so often, right? He wants to either get to the tiebreaker, or once he's a breakup, good luck getting that break of serve back because of how solid he is executing. But on a day when he only went 13 of 24 at the net, on a day when his opponent went 19 of 21 at the net, his opponent was 29 winners against 17 unforced errors. Milos Raonic, 53 winners against 31 unforced errors. But you want to take the serves out, it's still 28 winners against, well, you know, 27 unforced errors in terms of the ground strokes. It's just clicking for Milos Raonic right now, and you can make whatever joke you want. He didn't look great on Instagram, or he even now still doesn't seem to be as physically fit as maybe he was two, three, four years ago. It doesn't matter. No one is more confident in their game plan on a match-by-match basis then maybe, okay, maybe John Isner is as well, but even then, he's kind of a little iffy on the return games. Milos Raonic is going to serve big, try and serve in volley. He's going to look for first forehands exclusively. He's going to slice the backhand, and he's going to rip the first forehand he sees. And sometimes when you're keeping things that simple, it really is that easy for Raonic to bounce back from a breakdown in this one, Jamie. That was just a really impressive win. Yeah, this was good, right? I mean, you mentioned the weapons that he's got. He knows the game plan. And this sort of comeback shows me that third piece of mental toughness that you need. Um, So he's going to be incredibly dangerous. And and particularly, I just want to go to the third set here because it's not like Raonic won won the second and Kranovic was just simply out of this match because this was a grind the entire way through. So credit to him. But obviously, Raonic saving every break point that faced him in the third set, again, you can attribute that to the fact that he knows what he's doing. He has the huge serve, and he he has a guaranteed, well, not guaranteed, but sometimes it seems almost guaranteed way to get out of trouble, right? He just did so well in this match, and like you mentioned, he's so sure of what he needs to do, and that sort of confidence and attitude is exactly what he needs to be a threat in the U.S. Open, which I 100% think he is. Yeah, at this point, you just can't deny how well he's serving, and it's going to be really fun to see him match up against Tsitsipas uh, because, you know, for uh, just in in general, Tsitsipas played so many big servers, but Milos Raonic probably playing the best of the group, and, you know, Milos Raonic a little bit more decisive maybe than some of the other big servers he's played thus far uh, in uh, in, in this Western Southern Open. But yeah, I mean, look, for Milos Raonic in his career, you look at what he's done at the Slams. We all remember the Wimbledon final. He lost to Andy Murray. Uh, of course, he's been a semifinalist at the Australian Open, quarterfinalist at the French Open. He's made four fourth rounds at the U.S. Open, Jamie, but never made it to the quarterfinals. And, you know, you look at where he's at in the draw, you start to think about it. I mean, anything less than second week from Milos Raonic, I think we'll all be surprised. But I don't think it should shock anyone, right, to see him make the quarterfinals. I also, you know, I guess we'll start there. I don't think it should surprise anyone. No, I think I think you're right. I think uh, he should absolutely be expected to make a deep run. And not only are we thinking that, yeah, he's got to be thinking that too, especially with how the courts are playing, the level of play he's been at this week, the fact that the draw is a little bit weaker this year. Um, he's got to be feeling good. 
Yeah, and I mean, for Milos Raonic, again, a fun stat. Among every server in the open era, he's won 91% of his service games. That ranks third all time. I mean, the guy is just money. And on a hard court, we've talked about the stats. You'll hear them all in our U.S. Open preview content. Milos Raonic has clearly been one of the eight best players over these past five years on hard courts in a time when two of those others best eight players aren't playing. Uh, that means he should be considered someone who is certainly capable and and should be expected almost at this point uh, to make a quarterfinal. Quickly on this note, the flip side, Philip Krajinovich, really good week for him. What did you think about his level? What do you think he can do at the U.S. Open? I mean, look, I, I spoke to it a bit in this match. I mean, he's got to be having a ton of confidence. I mean, I think the the first match he had, the absolute wipe of Dominic team, or team's first match, right? Krajinovic taking him out in the fashion he did. I believe it was 2-1. and one. I mean, I think a lot of us can chalk that up to the classic Dominic team factor we sometimes see at the beginning of tournaments where everyone's just like i mean okay but there goes dominic team right you know that one was less about him and it's like wow kranovich looked really good but eh, you know maybe that was just team being team as kranovich has moved through this draw though it's become increasingly clear that he's just at a really high level right now i mean look even at this match alone if you want to take it in a vacuum the ability to be in raonic's service games consistently and get the break in as he was early on in the match that's incredible. I mean, that speaks for itself to me that he is locked in right now. And there were times throughout this match where, you know, Raonic could have, you know, hit one more big shot and ran away with it. Granovich didn't let him. So I think the biggest takeaway for me right now is this could be the highest level of tennis we've seen from Granovich, and he's got to have some momentum moving forward. Yeah, it's again, you look in the draw and for so many of these players. At this point, you can make the case really for anyone to go anywhere on both of these tours. But Philip Krajinovich has been playing some really solid tennis. His game style just seems to fit well. Again, he was up a set and a break on Milos Raonic, and that's really difficult to do now. He wasn't able to get over the finish line, but for him, the fact that he was at the very least able to get to you know a second set break or to get to 7-5 in the third, uh, it's a really good performance from Philip Krajinovich, who is plus 12 himself, winners to unforced stairs. And when you're playing someone as aggressive as Rayonich, you're going to have to take chances. Krajinovic was able to take the ball out of Rayonich's hands at times, 19 of 21 at the net. It was an either-or, and we've talked so highly about Milos Rayonich. Anyone who can play him that close, you have to take seriously. You know, it's quite clear how physically fit Krajinovic is heading into the Open, so he will absolutely be a player to watch. You you know, just to quickly look through the rest of these results, because you talk about physical fitness, obviously no one epitomizes the modern game the physicality it requires to succeed more than Novak Djokovic, who was a straight set winner, taking the wind out of Jan Leonard Struff's sails. Djokovic, 3-1 victory for him. Uh, obviously, the other winner, Stefano Tsitsipas, 5-6 victory for him. He gets a retirement from Riley Opelka, who started the match without knee tape, but it was pretty clear his knee was bothering him. Hopefully, it's just a precautionary pullout from Opelka, who proved all he needed to prove, but just wants to be healthy going into to the U.S. Open. Hopefully this was him saying, yeah, this match matters less than me being healthy for my first round match, which we now know will be against David Goffin. But Djokovic, Tsitsipas, your thoughts on them so far, Jamie? You know, they were the two people I got right in my predictions for the semifinals. I'm sure I'm not the only one. They both have looked really, really solid. 
Yeah, and look, let's start with Tsitsipas because it was kind of becoming a joke about the, the opponents he kept having to play, right? It was like, oh my god, another huge server. But to me, I mean, listen, at the point where the men's game is right now, it's pretty much impossible for him to move through the U.S. Open draw without him encountering one of the huge servers, right? Somebody who's going to be able to bomb serves, especially on these sort of courts, the way that we're hear hearing um, that they're playing. Unfortunately, we're not there, so I can't, you know personally attest to it but it looks like things are moving pretty fast so for him to have that experience and to get in these matches to get wins over the big servers like he has he has to have a lot of confidence in that alone um, so regardless of what happens from here on out with the tournament i think that he's got some great experience under his belt moving forward now for the Djokovic side I mean look this is what I was alluding to earlier in the pod is how many times have we seen a player moving through the draw looking phenomenal Struff looking on fire getting wins left and right and then just get completely blown out by Djokovic who honestly looked like he didn't even have to hit the real Djokovic gear um, and so it's to me that's just another one of like okay yeah Djokovic really is at this another level and that's why he's the favorite for me going into the U.S. Open yeah I mean Novak Djokovic just was dominant against Jan Leonard Struff, a guy who can hit the you know the cover off of the ball, and yet it was Djokovic doing the one dictating, Djokovic being the one changing direction, Djokovic just locked in physically as well. It was a really really impressive performance from him, and then for Tsitsipas, obviously you know I want to see how he holds up against Raonic today, who's just going to provide again relentless pressure, which he's seen a lot of this tournament, but. Yeah, for both of these players, they're finding big targets, they're playing to big margins, they're just finding their rhythm as well. This is exactly what they both would have wanted from this week, and even for Tsitsipas, let's say he loses to Raonic, well, he's not going to have to play a fifth big server in a row come U.S. Open, so I think for him to find his rhythm, he got absolutely what he wanted, and again, it's going to be really fun. We'll, we'll get to those semifinal previews in a second. want to quickly run through the rest of the women's results as well. I mentioned it earlier. Earlier, Elise Merton, so impressive in her 6-1-6-3 win over just Pagula. Now, maybe you're thinking Pagula was just out of steam. You know, that three-set battle she played against Sabalenka. No, Pagula was playing really well. Elise Merton's just was finding every angle, was anticipating so well. The topspin lob she threw in after a drop shot combo, the way she moved the ball around the court, the way she handled pace. It was really impressive. Similarly impressive, our two other quarterfinal winners, Joe Conte, just sort of dismantling Maria Sakari. Sakari didn't find her rhythm in this match, but for Conta, the variety was working. The slices, the drop shots, the heavy topspin, the angles, the approaches. Same, you know, it was a really good performance for Conta. For Vika Azarenka, it was survival against Owen Shabor. She fights off, I believe, four first set points, ends up winning 11-9 in the breaker. From there, Shabor's level kind of fell off 6-2 for Azarenka in that second set. But Jamie, Conta, Azarenka... And then, obviously, Elise Mertens, your thought on our other women semifinalists. Well, first of all, I have to give a shout-out to Azarenka for making me look good. I've been watching her all week, and that's one I've been talking about. So, phenomenal first set from her. I mean, I think the most promising thing for me is the fact that, you know, look, we mentioned it. Her movement isn't at the level that it once was, and it, it never will be, um, and that is what it is. But, man, the competitive spirit and the way she can get out of points and get through matches is just phenomenal. I mean, she still hasn't dropped a set in this tournament. Um, and so she is looking really, really good. Um, really excited to see what comes for her. And regardless of what happens from here on out, again, I feel like a broken record here, but she has to be having a ton of confidence moving into the U.S. Open now because regardless, I mean, look, she's had some great wins. She's escaped set points against her you know she's battled through 
different players, different styles. And so right now she's really just feeling comfortable. And given how the women's game is right now and then look at the women's draw, I mean, there's holes and openings everywhere seemingly. So no telling what a, uh, what a former Grand Slam champion can do. Conte, you nailed it. Um, absolutely. that The rhythm breaking, all the variety that she did really got her through that match. I love to see it. A nice 4-3 and three win for her. And then, yes, Mertens just at another level. Yeah, I mean, look, my thing about Azarenka, can she play this well for three weeks in a row? Yeah, Three I don't weeks know. at this. Yeah, it's a good question, but she has certainly looked really, really good this week. And for her, again, it was weathering the storm. Jabour did all sorts of funky stuff. And to be honest, I think if Jabour wins that first set, she probably wins the match in straight. The fact that she blew that first set, uh, that obviously stuck with her throughout the second. But yeah, credit has to go to Vika Azarenka, who really has looked so good this week. She looks so fit. She's hitting so confidently. She's changing direction well with her ball. Uh, It was an absolutely really good match for her. I mean, the thing that makes me so upset, Elise Mertens is playing out of this world right now, like so, so well, and I just, I, I cannot wait for this. Well, I guess from there, let's get into it. The preview of our semifinals. Let's start on the women's side. It's going to be Elise Mertens taking on Naomi Osaka, uh, Vika Azarenka taking on Joe Conta. Both of these matches have happened before. Mertens, Osaka, 1-1 one one the last time they played 2019 semifinals. Osaka, 4-1 winner for her at the tournament was in Osaka uh, as well. They also played in Wuhan 2017. Mertens, a 6-4-1-6-6-4 win in that match. Uh, your thoughts on this one, Jamie? Who you taking? I mean, so with Mertens and Osaka, I guess I will be surprised if it's a straight set win either way. But, you know, mm-hmm. look, they're already on court and Osaka's up. Um, she's got break points on Mertens' first service game. So we'll see from here. Again, of course, we've been here not watching, so I don't know the level that Osaka or Mertens is at. But regardless, that's still my take, and I'm sticking to it. I doubt it's going to be a straight set for either of them. Yeah, this is going to be a battle. This is one of those, hey, let's get a little U.S. Open pecking order matches as well. I think for Osaka, the thing she can do is get Mertens stretched. And Mertens is an okay mover, an exceptional anticipator, which makes up for her not the quickest first step. But Osaka, if you don't have a quick first step, you're just in trouble because she hurts you a lot. I agree. I think it's going to be a battle. Other note there, Vika versus Joe Conta. Joe Conta 2-1 against Azarenka the last time they played 2018. Conta, a straight set victory at uh, the Canadian, or I guess the Rogers Cup, Canada Masters, whatever you want to call it. Vika beat her in the Miami uh, in the Miami Open in 2016. They also played in 2015, but obviously both of these players and different players since that moment. Jamie, which way are you leaning in this one? Well, this one also just went on court. Uh, Azarenka had break points in Conta's first service game. Conta's got the ad right now. Regardless of how these first couple games, though, I mean... Look, Azarenka still has yet to drop a set, so I think it's silly for me to say that she wouldn't at least get one set in this one. I mean, Jokanta has looked so solid, but Azarenka, I mean, it's hard to counter out at this point. So again, I will doubt if this one is straight sets, um, but given that Azarenka has been pushed here, especially in that last match, I don't know. It's hard to bet against Joe Conta given the level we've seen from her. Azarenka, I hope that she just doesn't run out of steam. But at this point, later in the tournament, probably wanting to save some for the U.S. Open, I wouldn't blame her. 
Yeah, it's going to be a battle. Uh, I completely agree with you there. I lean Azarenka, and I make the case for that on our GSP Ace of the Day, but I would hear the case for either player. Those are the two women's matches. As you mentioned, 11 o'clock starts for them. 1 o'clock start for the men, and you know we could talk about the way they did the, the scheduling. The truth is I just— I. I'm not well enough informed on the way they do scheduling for tournaments. The fact that the two semifinals for the women are playing simultaneously, that they're not back-to-back, but the men's are. There is something you know, fishy, funky about that, but I just don't know enough about how court scheduling works to really have a definitive opinion. Uh, I, I imagine you're the same way on this one, Jamie. But mm-hmm. I know we do have opinions on these men's semifinals. Tsitsipas taking on Rayonic. They've played once before. Rayonic beat him this year in Australia, as you mentioned, 7-5, 6-4, 7-6. Djokovic versus Bautista Agut. They've played 11 times. Djokovic 8-3 head-to-head record, but... Bautista Gut got all uh, won two of the last three. They, he went two and one against Djokovic in 2019. He beat him twice on hard courts. Djokovic beat him on grass. Jamie, your thoughts on these men's semifinals? Yeah, so we'll start it with Raonic and Sitsipas. I mean, I think for Sitsipas, what a great stretch he's had in this tournament playing the big servers because everything has prepared him for this, right? Um, he's playing one of the biggest servers and probably the one that's in the best form in Milos Raonic right now. So to me, some of that gets neutralized, but if Raonic is playing at that top level that we saw from him at, at sort of the back end of his match against Krajanovic, I don't know if it matters what Sitsipas is doing because he's simply just that good. Um, on the Djokovic Batista Agut side, obviously the edge lies with Djokovic for me, um, especially given the fact that Batista Agut went through a grueling match. Now, sure, he had an extra day of rest, so you got to figure that helps him equalize things a bit here, but just hard to go against Djokovic given what we saw of his dismantling of Jan Arnstruf. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Tsitsipas you know, handles serve after serve again to the backhand, this time Milos Raonic edition, but you know, Tsitsipas has looked really comfortable on serve, so the key for him, you know, never get too high, too low, you just have to stay the course when you're playing someone who really plays at sort of tennis where the match is out of your control, yeah for Djokovic RBA, I think the day off for, and I don't want to call it a day off because that's not what it was, but you know, you also have to acknowledge a day of rest for Roberto Bautista Gu after the two physical matches he played against Hachinov and Medvedev certainly uh, will will help him show a higher level today against Djokovic but I agree if you can't hurt Novak Djokovic you can't beat him and I just I think it's going to be all Novak in this one and of course if you want to hear our picks for today's action you want to get in on the action with DraftKings be sure to go listen to our GSP ace of the day you can see those in video form as well on YouTube and across our various social media platforms if you have missed any of the action in uh, this Western and Southern Open. Go listen to our mini breaks from throughout the week. Again, you want to hear about Naomi, more about Naomi Osaka's decision on Thursday to not play her match, the ATP WTA's decision to uh, stand in solidarity with her. You can hear that on yesterday's mini break with Nina Pantic. And of course, for all of your U.S. Open content, tune into our Great Shot podcast. Ben Rothenberg, Mark Lucera, Nina Pantic, JC Aragoni, Luke Jensen joining me thus far. And of course, Jamie and Maddie Stacks will be joining me this weekend for a little bit of a draw breakdown. But we're rocking and rolling here at Cracked Rackets. We've got stuff on, uh, you know, preview content on our website as well. And all of our content you can find there, crackedrackets.com. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Flickner and Daniel Westoff for the f- 
of an editing job they do day in day out making all of that content available for you very easy for us to talk into mics much more difficult to make it sound coherent they're the guys that make it do so so shout out to them shout out to our friends at midwest sports and aero bar as well for all of your tennis gear needs go to midwestsports.com use our promo code cr15 go order yourself up some aero bars as well you won't regret it i guarantee it that extra boost you need to get the most out of your performance on court aerobar.com the promo code is cracked 15 jamie any final thoughts before we wrap today's show well i gotta apologize i didn't do my job cutting you short um because we've got <laughs> so much to do here we got to go watch these matches we get to do our drop reviews um, we've got a lot to do here so it's all tennis all the time and it's it's firing now with cincy and u.s open draws out so we got to get out of here watch some tennis and talk some more tennis as well but it's been a fun um and really looking forward to the semifinals today yeah, no, if I, I might take back a minute of that 11-minute spiel on Medvedev RBA. But yeah, it was a really good quarterfinal, so obviously we were really excited about that. And we're looking forward to, again, the semifinals, preparing for the U.S. Open, and of course, our second major of the year getting kicked off underway as well. So with that in mind, for my wonderful co-hosts, James Fulston McDonald, our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel podcast network i'm your host alex grusk and jamie what do we tell the people that's a break and we will see you all this weekend thanks everyone